When stores reopened after the first COVID-19 lockdown, retailers had a problem, counting exactly how many customers were inside to ensure shopping was safe. Hitachi found one solution with LiDAR, a technology used for driverless cars and building 3D models. To read more about how LiDAR is helping retailers keep shoppers safe, head to wired.uk forward slash Hitachi dash LiDAR. Coming up today, we're 500 so we're all feeling terribly old. Come celebrate. Welcome to the 500th edition of the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Templeton, and joining me this week are the whole gang. We've got Vicky Turk. Hi. Anna Koala. Hello. Natasha Bernal. Hello. And the Mats. Reynolds. Hello. And Burgess. Hello. This was the week when TikTok went mad for sea shanties. A collaborative cover of Wellerman, a 19th century whaling shanty, took TikTok by storm. The success propelled obscure Bristol-based folk band The Longest Johns, who recently released an a cappella version of the song, to second position in Spotify's global music chart. It was also the week when Japan's Super Nintendo World theme park had to delay its opening due to a spike in coronavirus cases. More than $500 million has been invested to create the theme park, which was originally uh, due to launch last year, and it includes areas and rides based on Super Mario games and also Donkey Kong. This was also the week when encrypted messaging app Signal saw a big boost in users, possibly linked to WhatsApp, sending a push notification about its privacy terms and how its data is shared with other Facebook properties. Telegram also said it had gained many users this week. WhatsApp, of course, still has billions of users. And finally, one of the ravens at the Tower of London has vanished and is presumed dead this week. The disappearance of Merlina, known as the Queen of the Ravens, brings the number of ravens at the Tower down to just seven. If two more were to die, according to legend, the kingdom would fall. I feel like the rest of us made a bit of an effort to at least not bring completely miserable facts onto the podcast, Natasha, but that is just unrelentingly bleak. Well, I just like the things that involve the kingdom will fall because there's so many legends around things that could make the kingdom fall. Like there's a stone that apparently if it's moved out of London will make the kingdom fall. You know, it's just so many. And just bird related facts are great, right? You know, I mean, if they have six ravens, that's fine. But if they have seven, that's one too many, which means you have a spare. It's it's all a bit it's it's very interesting I think it's it adds to the mystery of of you know would the kingdom fall is that the thing not Brexit not it, you know, it anything else that's going would. on not coronavirus we're all being held together by an obscure bunch of ravens all right exactly um, what did uh, what did we learn this week let's start with you Matt Reynolds. So I learned that most viruses are removed from your body pretty quickly. So you get ill, your body fights back and it clears out the virus. But some people can harbour viruses for a really, really long time. And that has quite big implications for how viruses mutate. In fact, one British man has harboured infectious polio virus in his gut for 28 years and still regularly sheds the virus in his faeces. And it's still infectious. So does, does that mean he can only poop in certain places? 
Um, I haven't checked. I think he can poop wherever he wants because the virus hasn't mutated enough that um, it's no longer responsive to vaccines. And obviously in the UK, most places in the world, everyone's vaccinated at birth. So he doesn't pr- uh, propose too much of a risk. But scientists are very aware that keeping tabs on these type of people might be a good way to spot how a virus is mutating. Amit, you've got a fact about things spreading as well. Uh, yeah, so when... <laughs> Not sure if that's the best segue, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Apologise to any religious people in advance. Um, When Christian Christian missionaries first started spreading their message, uh, there were some aspects that didn't quite translate. Uh, So, for instance, there's a line in the Lord's Prayer that says, give us this day our daily bread. That doesn't quite work if bread isn't a thing in your culture. So in Greenland, they had to come up with a kind of translation that would work for the Inuit people, and it became, give us this day our daily seal. Seal obviously being kind of a, a... prime food stuff for people in that part of the world uh, similarly in Papua New Guinea God's flock of sheep became his flock of swine because they don't have sheep uh, in Indonesia and, and in that part of the world um, and instead of Jesus referring to himself as the bread of life in Papua New Guinea he is the sweet potato of life that is absolutely superb 500 episodes in I think we've, we've got a contender for one of the, the best facts yet um, Natasha can you follow that why do you always do this to me it's every single like if you look through the history of 500 podcasts james waits until the best fact is said and then he goes natasha tell us. and then at the end he'll say that was not a very good fact well let's see maybe this time yeah well, well we will see won't we well you know my fact <laughs> is that monkeys do know how to barter with each other but they don't want to so a study of non-human primates showed that they don't learn to use currency to trade with conspecifics because they don't trust each other out of uncertainty that the other side will keep its end of the bargain. So the fairness of the deal needs human oversight. So they found if humans were watching and there was some sort of judge and jury there, they would exchange goods with each other. So a banana for an apple, a penny for a penny, that sort of thing. But if people weren't around, they would just sort of look at each other and go, don't trust this guy, I'm not going to do it. That's my fact. Basically like toddlers then, now that I spend a, a good portion of my life uh, bartering with toddlers. It, it, they, they behave much better when there's uh, a negotiator standing alongside to make sure that trades go off uh, without one screaming in the other's face. Um, I, I learned a fact this week that's, that, that's fairly rubbish, but I did fall down a bit of a, a sea shanty rabbit hole this week. So if you've listened to Weller Man, then you might have noticed that it's got some fairly unusual lyrics. In particular... There's a reference to when the tonguing is done. Um, tonguing, it turns out, um, just if, if you were enjoying the song, um, it refers to the removing of the tongue, which is the most edible part of the whale. So it's uh, it's a lovely sounding sh- sea shanty, but it, it is of course about the uh, the murder and butchering of whales. We can't have nice things. Uh, episode five hundred. Did I mention that? So when the Wired podcast debuted back on November fifth, twenty ten. David David Cameron had only just become the Prime Minister of the UK. The word Brexit hadn't even been invented yet and wouldn't be for two years. The first generation iPad was just a few months old and Facebook only had 600 million users. How far we've all come. And to show you how far, let's have a little trip down memory lane.
From London, it's the Wired.co.uk podcast, episode 3 for Friday, November 19th, 2010. It's the Wired.co.uk podcast, episode 100 for Friday, the 9th of November, 2012. This is the Wired.co.uk podcast, your four-year-old guide to the important and interesting from science and tech to penguin reproduction and insect genital science. You're listening to episode 300 of the Wired UK podcast, your weekly guide to the best of science, tech, ideas, business and design. We're 300 today. Which is amazing. I don't. I don't. I don't feel a day you look over. It. You look. Yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes. <laughs> You're listening to episode 400 of the Wired UK podcast. Your essential weekly catch up on all the big stories in technology, science, and business. 400 episodes of the podcast. That's it's a monument, monumental achievement. You know, I hadn't even clocked that. It is episode 400. How many years have we been going? About six or seven, probably. That's a lot of podcasts. It's a lot of podcasts. I remember 300, but I don't remember much before that. I think what we can take from that is we've we've gotten dramatically worse at celebrating major milestones, uh, perhaps marked most notably when we just forgot that it was the 400th episode. Uh, but never mind, we've remembered that it's the 500th. And, and, and Matt Burgess, you said that you couldn't remember much before the, the 300th episode. Um, but like, if, you, if you search like, really, really far back in, in your brain, when, when do you think your podcast debut was? Uh, it was probably towards the end of 2015, so um, I'm going to say November 2015. I'm, I'm looking for an episode number. Oh, um, if, I, if I was uh, prepared or had even thought this through, I could try and work out the maths, but I'm not going to do it. So I'm going to say 220. Close, close. 241. Who wants to hear Matt's first appearance on the podcast? The answer is yes. And a new voice. Who are you? Hello, I'm Matt, and I am very new. I'm shiny and clean. Shiny and clean. Matt, you are our new staff writer on Wired.co.uk. It's your first week. I'm going to put you on the spot. What's been your favourite thing so far? They would have to be my wonderful colleagues. Aww. 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 Brownie points. And he brings strawberries into the office for us to eat, so we like him as well. And he helps me make tea. Yes. You're an excellent tea's maid. Thank you. Excellent tease made. Not a lot of chains, Matt. So you've been on the podcast for more than half the episodes we've put out since episode 241. And Matt Reynolds, you've been around since episode 260. Uh, not so bad. That's, um, yeah, that's older than I thought. Exactly. Um, unfortunately, due to a, a quirk in our CMS, I haven't been able to find the debuts of Natasha, Amit and Vicky. Um, but we've all, we've all been doing this for, for some time now. And it turns out that a lot of you have been listening for a long time. Um, so we asked you last week to send us an email letting you know, letting us know who you were, uh, who you are, in fact, and how long you've been listening for. Um, so uh, thanks very much to Ant in Germany, who's been listening for two years, Serge from the Netherlands, Giovanna in London, Harvey from London, who's been listening for two years and just subscribed to the magazine, wired.co.uk forward slash magazine please join nick from tennessee in the us stephen from johannesburg in south africa who's been with us since almost the start roland from finland who's been listening since the start of 2020 saswati from canada who's found who found our humble podcast a year ago matt from california jack from ontario canada who's been with us since the very beginning bernie from costa rica enrique from spain who's been with us for five years and Viraj from Stockholm, who's been listening since 2016. So a really international bunch of listeners. Thank you so much to everybody who listens to the show. We really do love doing this for you every week. Um, but I wanted to get some of your 
fondest podcast memories. Does does anyone have a favourite podcast memory? Or is that asking a bit too much? Matt Reynolds. Well, it might not show from the production values, but usually we do the podcast in one fluid, faultless run. But I do remember a podcast not all that long ago that involved a fact, I think, from you, James, about where corpses are stored aboard aircrafts, the corpse cupboard. And for some reason, we just, there was a transition after that fact to something else that was very tonally different. And we just could not get through that at all. Every time, it just absolutely had us in, in, in peals of laughter. So I remember that was one of the rare examples where we had to redo the intro of the podcast, maybe, I don't know, seven or eight times. I think we, we were stuck in that, that godforsaken cupboard for a good couple of hours uh, trying to get the podcast recorded. Yes, anyone else? Well done for actually remember. I was racking my brains trying to think of something. I remember doing a podcast with just Matt Burgess once, um, which was, it was quite hard to fill 40 minutes um, of us just staring blankly at each other when we realised the other was coming to an end of a sentence. But we got there and, and the podcast still went out. Natasha, you had your hand up. Yeah, so I actually have a favourite podcast moment. I wasn't even on that podcast. So my favourite podcast moment is when Matt Burgess uh, gave the worst fact of all time, which was a Lord of the Rings fact, that he never truly lived down in the group chat about the podcast later on, where he basically got rinsed the entire week for giving the weakest, worst podcast fact of all time. And then he was like swearing up and down, I'm never going to do that again. I'm all, I'm going to you know put in the time get really great facts and the following week he comes up with the worst guinness world record fact it was it was genuinely just a moment of of like triumph of you know there is excellence in mediocre facts and that has inspired me at least ever since with my facts so that's my favorite bit it's an absolutely crucial part of the show we'd be truly lost without rubbish facts um, and what was everyone doing? So we, we debuted the podcast on the 5th of November 2010. So I asked you all before we started recording to scroll back through your photo archives and your emails and, and try and work out what were you doing on November 5th, 2010, um, other than maybe going to a fireworks display. Who wants to volunteer? Go on, Burgess. Um, I was traveling, I think. So at the time I was a student at university uh, and I scrolled back through my Facebook um, archive and everything this morning looking at this. And I was very active on Facebook for one thing at that time in November 2010. There was like three free Facebook statuses in one day. Uh, and one of them just said Northampton, the town I'm from, smiley face. And then the other one said uh, mistake of the day, leaving my heating on all day and then not being able to sleep. So it was truly a riveting time. <laughs> I think your online <laughs> brand has improved a bit in the intervening decade. Uh, who else? Uh, was Yeah, Amit. So I had just started my first job in journalism uh, for Overseas Property Professional, a business-to-business magazine for the property industry. I hated it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I really did not enjoy that job. Um, and I was there for about six months or something like that. But yeah, it was like my first foot in the door in kind of business journalism and then eventually the start of the long road that led me here long and winding road uh anyone else what were you up to on november 5th or thereabouts 2010 anyone else want to volunteer go on matt reynolds well so i was a month shy of my 18th birthday in november 2010 (laughs) so looking back at my emails i was writing a really interesting essay comparing shakespeare and uh graham green and thomas hardy but actually 
I was just reflecting on, you know, all that's kind of passed in those 10 years. And I thought, well, back then in 2010, I'd never heard of the magazine Wired. And I think it was still five years or so before I'd listened to my first podcast. So if you'd told me I was going to be involved with a podcast with Wired magazine, I, I really would not have had a clue what you were on about. And look at you now recording the Wired podcast with your laptop on an ironing board. Well, how, yeah, here I no am. longer on the ironing board or you've, you've no. upgraded? I'm on a very, very small desk and a very, very small chair that makes me feel <laughs> like I'm, you know, in a, a nursery or something or I'm a child again. How far we've all come from, from the days when you still were a child, 10 years, uh, 10, well, 10, 11 years ago when the podcast debuted. Um, as I said to you uh, just a, uh, a bit earlier, thanks so much to everyone for, for listening, even if it's only been for a few months or if like a lot of you, it's been since the very beginning. Uh, thanks so much for tuning in. All right, enough navel-gazing for now. Uh, our first story this week, um, and you'll probably be used to uh, dramatic handbrake turns on this podcast, we're going to go from navel-gazing to the events in the United States over the last several days. Matt Burgess, can you catch us up on what's been a truly remarkable and thoroughly depressing week in America? There really has been a lot going on in the last week, but just before I start, we're recording this podcast on January the 15th, and it is around lunchtime in the UK, so a lot could have changed uh, since we recorded this. But where we are at the moment, since uh, January the 6th, when the violent mob stormed the US Capitol building, the online world has been reacting uh, in some cases very quickly, and in some cases a little bit slower, as much as the law enforcement bodies who have been making belated uh, arrests. In the last week, we've seen investigators and sleuths online trawling through photos and videos of those in and around the Capitol, including their own posts and identifying who was involved. Donald Trump has been banned from Twitter, Facebook, YouTube uh, for his posts that helped to incite the violence and the actions on the day. Trump has also been impeached for the second time. Uh, The FBI has had more than 100,000 tips and pieces of digital evidence sent to it. And at the moment, more than 70 people have been arrested, with the FBI having more than 170 cases open and saying there'll be more arrests and charges to come. Um, There's a huge amount of detail and stuff going on here, but we're going to focus on one area, which has been the shift in digital platforms. And among all of this, um, the free speech social network Parler was taken offline. James, you've been looking into what specifically happened with Parler uh, over the last few days and why it is important. Yeah, it's a, it's a really horrible place. One researcher that I spoke to summed it up quite nicely, saying that Parler is almost all bad. You know, there's very complicated discussions to have about how to properly run Facebook and Twitter, but in his estimation, and this, this feels like a, a fair assessment, Parler was all bad. So in the days before it went offline, the number of posts using terms such as civil war, insurrection and rebellion soared. Mentions of the Proud Boys, a far-right neo-fascist male-only extremist group, also increased dramatically. So we took a grab of data focused on these key terms from the beginning of January through until when Parler went offline on January the 10th. Mentions of such terms, and remember that Parler was was quite small, so these numbers might seem insignificant, but they're quite significant in terms of Parler's scale. So mentions of terms related to the Civil War, um, 
and violent uprising rose from around about 850 on January the 1st to more than 3200 at the peak on January 9th. That's an increase of 280%. And crucially, these posts went viral. They were seen by an incredibly large audience by Parler's standards. So between January the 1st and January the 10th, posts mentioning these terms relating to the Civil War and insurrection received more than 212 thousand total interactions, that's likes, comments and shares, and were seen by an audience of four million people. The total audience for these posts grew by 169% from January the 1st to its peak on January the 6th, when the mob stormed the US Capitol. And that means that more than half a million people were seeing those posts on that day alone. Now, a lot of what we see on Parler is spam. So Parler doesn't or didn't limit the number of hashtags you could use in a post or the number of characters you could include in a post. So that means that a lot of what you see on Parler is, is meaningless. It's just endless lists of hashtags and gibberish. But amongst that, and this is really crucial, were clear calls to arms. So we've seen posts in the archive data that we've been through um, that tell people to uh, stand and give the left the civil war that they want. That was from a post on January the 5th. Um, another post said boots on the ground, total commitment. That was also on January the 5th. Other posts um, basically claimed that Joe Biden is a paedophile or attacked the Antifa or Black Lives Matter, quote unquote, scum. We've seen similar threats published by Amazon in a legal filing um, in response to an emergency motion by Parler to restore its hosting. One of these posts, um, so all of these posts were between November and early January. One of them said, after the firing, firing squads are done with the politicians, the teachers are next. And another said, we are going to fight in a civil war on January the 20th, form militias now and acquire targets. And it's this very specific nature, it's, it's the this, this specific threats of violence that's caused Parler so much trouble and made it the focus of so much attention. It's worth saying that Parler's obviously arguing that this um, sort of takedown constitutes an assault on freedom of speech and they're fighting that. But, but for now, it's, it's gone. It's not forgotten. How are we able to still see what was happening on Parler before it was taken offline? Yeah, so Parler made this strange claim that even though it's basically a, a really shoddy Twitter clone, that it was somehow, as well as being a platform for free speech, that it was also a platform that had user privacy front of mind. So it turned out that that really, really wasn't the case. So the reason that we know as much as we do about what happened on Parler in that crucial period of time when a violent mob stormed the US Capitol is because of Internet archivists. So when Amazon announced it was taking Parler offline, an archiving effort that was already underway turned into a mad dash. They only had a few hours to try and get the entire of Parler archived. So one of the leaders of this ad hoc archiving project, a pseudonymous Twitter user known as Donk MB, described the process as akin to a bunch of people running into a burning building trying to grab as many things as they could. So it might not have intended to, but Parler was really, really badly coded. And in being badly coded, it left anyone who had ever posted publicly on its platform ruthlessly exposed. So unlike Twitter, for example, which uses a random string of letters and numbers to create a unique identification code for each new post, Parler creates all such IDs sequentially. So the practice is common across social media sites, or is rather isn't common across social media sites. Twitter's practice is common. Those, those, those codes should be random. What happens on Parler is you increase the value of any Parler poster account by one, and you get the next poster account. So 
archiving the entire of Twitter is incredibly difficult because you need direct access to an API and you need permissions. On Parler, you just have to know what the first number is and then you can guess every single number that's come since. Parler also didn't put any limit on the rate at which people could access posts on its site. So this allowed archivists to write a very, very simple script that told Parler's web server to gather up and download every single piece of public content that had ever been uploaded onto its platform. And that archive we now know totals 56.7 terabytes and is made up of 412 million files, including 150 million photos and 1 million videos. That's obviously a huge amount of information. It's going to take some time to trawl through it. What do the authorities hope to learn and find out by going through that, that huge trove of information? Yeah, so unusually, when, when you upload a photo to Twitter or Facebook, a bunch of metadata goes with it. Facebook and Twitter and most online platforms strip away that metadata before posting it publicly and retain it so that they can better target ads. Parler didn't do that. It left the metadata attached to photos and videos. So anyone that downloads that photo or video can access the time and location where they were captured. And when you're trying to track who was a member of a violent mob that stormed the US Capitol, that could be really, really useful. So within hours of the data being posted online, the technology news site Gizmodo revealed that a number of Parler users were amongst the horde of rioters that forced their way deep inside the capital. And you can see this because when they took photos and videos and posted them to Parler, the GPS location of their device at the time showed exactly where they are. And GPS is accurate enough that you can see that someone might have been in a corridor near Nancy Pelosi's office. It also appears somewhat bizarrely as though deleted posts were retained in Parler's database and even flagged as deleted. So in, in Parler's database there's um, a field for post state um, and that would appear to indicate that you can see if a post, a draft post, an archive post, a deleted post or a live post and this essentially could provide researchers and law enforcement with a bin of stuff that people wanted to hide from history. So the FBI is also likely to issue warrants for a clean version of this data, which is still held by Amazon Web Services. But having it available in the open for anyone to analyze is both useful for generating leads to investigate and a bit of a data privacy nightmare. I think if, if this wasn't related to the, the very extreme side of the American far right and a violent mob storming the US Capitol, we'd all be raising eyebrows about the data privacy implications of this. That's a really, really difficult question to answer and not one that I think we can get into now, but it's certainly something that we're going to be wrangling with for many months and years to come. As I say, on day one of this data being analysed, it was used to locate people amongst a violent mob. It's it's almost like it's almost comical, like it's, it's as if they just basically like set up like a WordPress site or something, and then just a bunch of hundreds of thousands of people just like posted about how they were breaking the law, <laughs> and then they were they were surprised when it kind of they kind of got found out. I mean, what what do you think Parler's legacy will be now that it's I guess gone, maybe not for good, but gone for now? Yeah, it's a, it's a really fair point about how badly this site was coded. I mean, you've got to remember that it had about 30 employees. It never had any venture capital funding. Most of its funding came from a couple of influential figures in the conservative media circuit. Um, it, it didn't run any ads, so it didn't really have a, a direct revenue stream. It had about 15 million members. At the time, it was hauled offline. It was adding about a million a day. So the, the growth sent its way by the deplatforming of, of Trump on Facebook and Twitter 
did see Parler explode, but it was still, I mean, 15 million versus Facebook's 2.7 billion. This is a drop in the ocean, but it's a really, really significant drop, as we saw by the events that played out in Washington on January the 6th. So its legacy, I guess, is a, is a bit of a blessing and a curse, right? So its membership was small, but Parler was, above all else, an engine for radicalization in which extreme views were made ever more dangerous. But as I said, it was also a poorly coded radicalization in, in, um, engine. So that means that we have all of this potentially incriminating data. And as one researcher who studied Parler in detail since its launch told me, Parler was more than anything else an example of what can happen, what not what inevitably will happen, but what can happen when you de-platform radical voices from places like Twitter and Facebook. Many of these people and their followers ended up on Parler, and we all know what happened next. So, Matt, pick up the story from, from there. Where are we at? Now, the story isn't dead with Parler going offline. There's plans for future protests. There's an awful lot of concern that there might be more violence. And there's a bit of a race to track down where it's being talked about and how it's being organised. Yeah, you're absolutely right, James. So among all of this that has been happening, we've seen a lot of the uh, right wing uh, political uh, side of the spectrum, not both those at the extreme ends, but also those that are just uh, normal everyday Republicans following Trump, etc., leaving some of the big social media platforms following Trump's uh, own sort of uh, deplatforming on there and his own ban. So um, Telegram has seen a huge influx of new um, users for the, it said it's added 25 million new people over the last uh, few days and, and week really um, and some of the channels uh, on telegram have been uh, sort of grown hugely so there's a couple of uh, channels that are uh, based around sort of people who were on parlor before one of those that i was looking at seeing sort of thousands of messages sent um, in a period of a few hours there was almost uh, a thousand messages every hour being sent um and that was at the very sort of like uh, the uh, more uh, non-extreme end of the of the right political spectrum. But also the groups on the extreme right have, have seen uh, their membership grow as well. And these are sort of the public groups that people have been looking at. And uh, there have been researchers looking at these uh, conversations that have been going on there to work out if there is more uh, violence or anything planned. And there seems to be in some very small pockets of these uh, groups which are public and it's worth pointing out there are uh, there'll be groups and chats that aren't public so that people can't look at them and analyze them unless they're involved in them uh, but from what we can see in some of the public ones there seems to be a small amount of conversation around future protests and and violent action taking place and this is sort of borne out as well in um what we've seen from the FBI and the Secret Service and other law enforcement bodies as well, they've warned that there could be future uh, future violence and, and protests planned around uh, the inauguration and also before that. Um, but also there's an element of people uh, that have seen what has happened in the Capitol and don't want to be involved in that. Some of the re researchers that I have been speaking to have said so. We're obviously going to see a lot of stuff happening over the next few days, whether it is uh, more protests and more and violence, uh, hopefully not. But there's going to be a lot more sort of like conversation and, and within Washington, D.C. itself, there's preparations around the inauguration are sort of ramping up in terms of uh, enforcing the Capitol building, National Guard are in, uh, in place. So that's something that people are definitely going to have to watch out for over the next few days. It's a huge, huge story. As I say, we've only been able to talk about a very, very thin wedge on it. Um, but there's a bunch of stuff that we've covered on the website this week, and we'll include a link to some of those stories in the show notes. Podcast at wired.co.uk if you've got any questions for us about 
deplatforming, radicalization, the response to the events in the US and, and your thoughts on how we can move forward from this and ensure that events like this don't happen again. Um, I hate segues like this because there is no good way to go from the rise of fascism in America to bees. Um, so we're just going to do it like that. Matt Reynolds, we published a story this week looking at adulterated honey. That's right. So this is about a story. This is a story about a illicit market that is operating right out in the open. And like you said, that's the trade in adulterated honey. In fact, this is so widespread. There's a really good chance that you, did any of you, the six of you or the five of you have honey this morning on your toast? I had it on my Vicky, porridge. On I your will. Porridge and... <laughs> yeah, I will out myself as a bit of a honey snob. Um, I really like nice honey. So there's little chance that your honey has been tampered with. Well, it's it's a funny thing actually because I had never heard of honey being tampered with until you told me about this story. But I am a honey snob who would turn my nose up at kind of cheap supermarket honey and be like, "Ugh, just taste of sugar syrup." And now I find out. Maybe it is. Exactly. You might be onto something. So this is all about honey that's coming from China and may be adulterated with something called sugar syrup. So most of the honey that is imported in, into Europe from China isn't pure honey. So what happens is cheap honey is typically blended with sugar syrup in a way that evades tests that tell the real stuff apart from the fake stuff. But essentially it's still marketed as pure honey. But Beekeepers believe that this adulterated honey is responsible for saturating the market and crashing global prices, as well as deceiving millions of customers. So aside from upsetting people like me, who take their honey obviously very seriously, what impact is this having on the industry? Yeah, and I think one of the reasons why you said, Vicky, that people aren't typically aware of this is that unless you're a honey connoisseur like yourself, you don't necessarily know the difference between different types of honey and you certainly don't feel the impact of honey uh, perhaps being adulterated. Now, the people it does impact are beekeepers. So our reporters for this story spoke to one beekeeper in Mexico, a guy called Jose Eduardo Mupat, who owns some honeybee hives on the Yucatan Peninsula. Now, five years ago, he could sell fair trade honey for 47 pesos a kilogram, which is about one pound. 73. Now that price has fallen to 35 pesos a kilogram. For conventional honey, it's even more dramatic. So 43 from 43 pesos per kilogram to just 23 pesos. So in Mexico, the price of honey is almost halved. Now, many of Mexico's estimated 42,000 beekeepers, um, much of whose product ends up going to Europe, are now giving up and abandoning their hives. A Mupat and other beekeepers in Mexico are saying this is all to do with fraudulent honey coming from China. And they're starting to fight back. They're campaigning internationally to investigate and expose honey fraudsters, as well as making people aware about you know, the risk to biodiversity that comes from abandoned hives and declining bee populations. So what's the problem beyond the beekeepers? I assume that the global honey industry is is huge. This isn't sort of some unfortunate thing for a clutch of farmers in, in Mexico. This has really, really profound impacts on the global economy, right? 
Yeah, so the bee, the honey industry is about five billion pounds a year and encompasses some 90 million managed beehives. And the problem is, is that farming bees is really, really labour intensive. And that's what makes honey expensive. You'll find if you have locally uh, sourced honey, it could be really, really expensive, you know, 12 pounds a, a pot or, you know, more than that. Vic is nodding because she, she knows she's got some of the good stuff in her Worth cupboard. every penny. <laughs> so that makes it a really tempting target for adulteration with cheap substitutes. And typically how it works is that honey is diluted with sugar syrup that is usually manufactured from rice, corn or sugar beets. Now, China is the world's biggest producer of honey and it accounts for about a quarter of all global output. But its rise to dominance um, and its low prices have long been viewed with suspicion. So in China, um, so a lot of China's honey industry is concentrated in the eastern province of Xijiang. I think I'm pronouncing that right, where um, industrial plants manufacture cheap rice and corn syrup that is intended to be blended with honey. So in fact, on Alibaba, the Chinese online marketplace, it, you know, advertises fructose syrup for honey for as little as 76p per kilogram. So it's quite open that, you know, people are manufacturing this, uh, you know, this syrup to be able to be blended with honey. And the problem is, is that as honey production elsewhere in the world, especially in Central and Eastern Europe, has declined, the price of honey, which you would expect to go up because of the decline in production, has actually just kept going down. And many think that's being driven by illicit honey that is really, really widespread. So in 2015, the European Commission's in-house science service, the Joint Research Centre, tested 893 samples of honey from retailers and found that 14% of them, that's a 127 were suspected of containing added sugar syrup so but the problem is is that although we know that this adulterated honey is out there there's not a test reliable enough to bring prosecutions against honey adulterators who keep finding ways to outsmart regulators i I guess i mean i guess the problem is that for a lot of consumers unless you're you know a honey connoisseur you're not going to be able to tell the difference like what what tests are they using to actually tell the difference between this adulterated honey and actual pure honey that's only from bees so historically regulators have relied on one internationally accepted test which is technically known as AOAC 998.12 but among us we can just call it the C4 sugar test and this exploits quite a simple thing about how honey is formulated so the sugar molecules produced by tropical plants such as sugarcane and maize have four carbon atoms while the nectar and pollen protein collected by uh, bees typically come from plants whose sugars contain three carbon atoms so this is really simple if you're seeing um you know if you're um analyzing a sample and has loads of c4 atoms it suggests that those sugars have come from something that isn't honey so that that whole test is all about trying to find these c4 atoms the problem is is that fraudsters have for quite a long time been aware of this test and how to beat it they simply find other sources of cheap syrup so they go for rice or sugar beet whose sugar molecules resemble those that are closer to honey and that's undermining the test Now, beekeepers are hopeful that a new generation of tests and a new kind of imaging could change everything. This is called nuclear magnetic resonance, and it's hopefully something that could be the salvation for beekeepers. And how it works is it bathes samples in a powerful magnetic field, which causes atoms to resonate. And these resonant frequencies of the atoms are then converted into peaks, uh, or what's called spectra on a graph, which creates a 
unique magnetic signature for each sample of honey. And the idea is, you know, in the case of honey, the technique is used to compare the molecular profile of a sample honey with the NMR database of genuine honeys to establish authenticity. So the idea is you take this honey off the shelf, you fingerprint it if you like, and you compare it with its unique fingerprint from somewhere else. And that'll tell you if definitively that is honey from the Yucatan Peninsula, or if it may contain something from somewhere else. So in late 2018, the Honey Authenticity Project in Mexico commissioned a whole bunch of tests on British supermarket honeys, um, including these NMR tests. Now, 10 of the 11 products that they tested, including own brand honey from Tesco, failed the NMR test because of suspected sugar adulteration. So we're hopeful that this new generation of tests should be able to point out which honeys are adulterated. So it shows that the honey detectives are right and that honey forensics works. So what's the hold up with using these, these new tests to make sure that the spread of fake honey can stop? Yeah, so you're exactly right. So we've got this new test. It works. It's pretty reliable. All you need to do is find the fake honey, find out who's um, selling it and try and trace it back to the source. But there's a problem because although these NMR tests work, they only work if you have a reliable database of honeys to compare them with. Now, commercial laboratories around the world are compiling NMR databases for honey. In fact, one US company called Bruca has built a database containing the profiles of about 1,800 1, different types of honey, including Chinese samples for use of its food screener NMR machine. But the problem is, is these commercial laboratories insist, insist that their databases are confidential, meaning they can't be independently audited and no court would accept them or accept a secret database as the basis for convicting someone of a crime. And the problem is, is that if you're a honey company and you go to a food screening company to look at your honey, you're really hoping that they're going to be like, your honey's great, it's fine, you can put our stamp on it and you can go away. What these commercial labs don't want to do is invite anyone to see their database, which would essentially undermine their their position to the honey manufacturers who are their main customers. So, in fact, because of this, um, Britain's mainstream, um, you know, lots of honey importers in the UK say, well, look, because we can't, um, you know, tell if this is actually fine honey or not, there's evidence that it's okay. Like, we don't have tests to rely on. It's fine. Everything's okay. So, the thing that's happening now is that beekeepers are campaigning for these databases to be opened up and officially accredited. But for lots of people, it's just too late. So in Mexico, um, Mupat, the person we you know heard from right at the beginning, says he's now supplementing his income from beekeeping um, with work as a bricklayer and no longer has the time or money to tend to his bees properly. And he says that other beekeepers have already sold their land for crop production and gone to work in other sectors such as tourism. So really, it's this kind of sad story of a technology that perhaps could provide a salvation, but because it's tied up in proprietary software and because it's tied up in um, commercial industries, it's not really providing the benefits that we hoped it would to begin with. Really, really fascinating story. Um, it's a long read and it's well worth taking the time to sit down and get to grips with. Head to the show notes for a link to that brilliant story about honey fraud and the race to crack down on it. Now from honey bee hives to music behavior. Yes. Vicky, <laughs> you've been looking at how people can shake up their Spotify listening habits in the new year. I have, yes. This is a bit of a personal mission of mine, which I thought I'd kind of share with everyone. Um, so, you know, one of my New Year's resolutions, I think I have this pretty much everywhere, every year, to be honest, it's to listen to more new 
music. So I looked into how to shake up your listening habits if you're using a streaming service, which let's face it, you probably are. So um, I wanted to go out to you guys first, podcast people. Tell me your listening habits. If you're putting on music, what's your kind of go-to? Do you use personalized playlists? Like what would you just put on? James. I have a bit of a, a bit of a gripe with this. Um, we use a, a voice assistant to, to play music when we listen uh, when, when we eat dinner. Um, and if you say something, and, and excuse me, this sounds awful, but like Spotify, play some dinner jazz or whatever, right? It is abundantly obvious that there's a bunch of people who are using like voice-based SEO to game the system. So the sort of stuff that ends up getting played out, even if you say something that isn't as abhorrent as dinner jazz, you still end up with this sort of strange algorithmically generated SEO nonsense. It's it's very, very unsatisfying. So James unsatisfied with dinner jazz options. Natasha, where do you go? <laughs> so I got that report from Spotify, you know, the end of year one that says what you've listened to most, who your favourite artist is. And I think it sort of encapsulated 2020 that I was among the 0.0005% top, top listeners of Lizzo. I think I might have listened to her more than like she's listened to herself or like <laughs> I genuinely it was it was one of those moments where I sort of looked at it I was like no this can't be true and I just realized that I basically had Lizzo I, I played her like every hour every day <laughs> it was, you need it was some shocking. light in your life in it, 2020. Was, it was so yeah it was pretty bad I do I still listen to her yes um which is probably quite a tragic indictment of this lockdown but it, it, I, I I love Lizzo you know there's nothing wrong but I do feel like I don't listen to anything else but Lizzo so well maybe yeah. this story is for you then if you're looking Same to kind thing. of diversify just a little bit maybe you know another artist in the same genre at least um because I'm to be honest I am very lazy when it comes to my own habits I rely on those personalized recommendations a lot I'll usually just shove on one of those personalized playlists and just listen through to it no further intervention but sometimes Natasha, you might not get bored of, of Lizzo, but I get bored of my playlists. I, you know, I used to be really into discovering new bands or at least bands that were new to me and exposing myself to new music, finding something a bit different. And I feel like by the end of each year, I always get into a funk of just listening to the same things again and again. And the problem is, of course, the more you listen to the recommended playlists, the worse it gets, because by listening to the same stuff, you're reinforcing it. You're telling the recommendation system that that's the kind of music that you really want to listen to. So it will then further recommend it to you. It's it's like a taste feedback loop, which results into you only listening to ABBA. I'm sure you all know exactly how I feel. So I basically wanted to find out if there was a way that I could work to make my recommendations a little more diverse. Could I maybe train the algorithms or even trick it into giving me something new? So, I mean, how does how does that work? Is is step one, stop listening to ABBA. That's generally a good step for any New Year's resolution. Yes, unfortunately, that probably is necessary. Um, obviously, yeah, if you just keep listening to the same stuff, you're going to get recommended the same stuff. Um, and you probably just want to listen to the same stuff. So, you know, you do you. If that's what you want, that's fine. Um, but there are perhaps a few ways you can work to get 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 yourself out there a bit more. 
Now, the first thing to note is that we don't actually really know how the specific recommendations used by Spotify, Pandora, Deezer and the like work. The companies are generally very secretive about this. Uh, Spotify didn't want to talk to us about the details of their algorithms. It's all a bit um, unknown. But I did speak to a couple of researchers who specialise on music recommendation systems and they said that we can assume most streaming services are heavily based on something called collaborative filtering. This works by making recommendations based on what other people who like the same as who like the same things as you like also like. So essentially, if you both like these two artists, you'll probably like this one too. You might think that your music taste is really personal, personal to you, but because these services have so many use, users, they have loads of data to build up these pictures of taste clusters and get a feel for what your general likes would be, grouping together tracks, artists, and genres that appeal to that same group of people. So it may sound kind of sacrilegious if you're a real music buff, uh, but Peter Knees, a professor at the University TU Veen, told me it's really not that different to the old days when you might ask someone who liked a few of the same artists as you for another recommendation. The algorithm's basically doing the same thing. It's finding out what your taste is, who else has that taste, and what they might like as well. This is the problem with collaborative filtering, right? We, we see it as similar to what it was like in the quote-unquote good old days, right? When, fair enough, you would ask a mate what music they were listening to and, and knowing they had similar tastes, they might suggest something that, that you would like that you hadn't heard of. But you also might ask someone with completely different tastes or hear something that someone was playing with completely different tastes and then start talking about that and be introduced to new stuff. And that doesn't happen with collaborative filtering. You're just all sort of funneled into these really, really narrow niches. So how can you get away from that and bust out of the system, if you like? Yeah, breaking out of the box that you've been put in is where things get really hard because that's exactly what the system is designed not to do, right? It's sort of the opposite of where it's trying to go. Marcus Schadel, a professor at Johannes Kepler University Linz, uh, told me that really the best thing to do would just be to make a new account so you don't have that legacy of your previous data that's informing all of these systems and taking you back to the same stuff. But obviously that's a bit impractical and, you know, you might still want that stuff there. Presumably you do like it. That's why you listen to it. So if you're not going to do that, you really are going to have to put in a bit more work. You need to find something that's outside of your usual taste, which means you're probably going to have to put in the effort yourself and not rely on the system system recommending something because that will do so within the boundaries of what you normally listen to. So you're going to have to do that bit yourself. And once you've done that, then you might be able to start going from there to try and diversify some of what you're being shown. So one thing he suggests is you could perhaps start a radio playlist on Spotify, which is like an automated playlist, but it's based around the specific artic artist or track that you're listening to so that you can hear more of that kind of thing although there is a caveat there because we don't know how much those playlists are also influenced by your previous listening behavior so there's a chance they could also tend back towards the same stuff another suggestion is that you could just do something simple like listen to the latest releases or even you know the charts or something like that because eventually you might come across something that's your thing and you just didn't realize it if you want to get out of the popular sort of mainstream stuff, though, and go digging for some diamonds in the rough, it starts to get even harder. Even if you explicitly go looking for a new genre or a new artist, you're likely going to be pushed towards the most popular tracks. And this makes sense because, you know, if more people like it, chances are you're more likely to like it as well. But it does mean it's 
it's harder to find the less popular stuff, maybe like a hidden gem that's just perfect for you. So you really need to go sort of manually searching for and looking for these things in the long tail, that kind of like huge swathe of stuff on streaming services that not many people listen to, but enough people listen to the whole lot altogether that it makes it very valuable. And again, even if you're doing this, your recommendations will still always slightly go more towards the mainstream, most likely, because that's where the system has the most data. And so it's strongest. So you want to go you want to go back out of automated systems, basically, where you can if you're looking for something that's a bit different. So maybe follow playlists that are made by people, not just the algorithmic ones. And start making your own too. When you find something you like, add it to a playlist. And the more that you're listening to more diverse stuff, this should supposedly, you know, inform the system that you want to be recommended things from this genre as well, or maybe something from artists like this person too, and not just ABBA. Trying to hack the system, as, as you basically say, it sounds all well and good, but it was all very much based on uh, your own behavior and people and us doing things. Is there anything that we know about the underlying uh, recommendation systems themselves, themselves that could uh, be, could they be built differently? Could they work in a way that is uh, is less likely to resurface the same things to, to you all the time? Is, is there anything we could, that can be done, I guess, technologically underlying? So one thing streaming services could do is to employ a different type of recommendation system called content-based recommendation. So this means that instead of looking at your listening habits and sort of comparing that to what other people like, the system would look actually at the music that you're listening to itself. So it could give numerical values to things like the tempo of a track or the key it's in or even how like danceable it is or try to classify the mood of it like oh an energetic song or a depressing song or whatever and then it could recommend other tracks based on just the sound qualities so you know you might be looking to a pop song listening to a pop song and then uh, it recommends a jazz song which has some similarities maybe it's a similar sort of tempo or pitch or, or whatever you could use this also with collaborative filtering and kind of like use both together within one system. And the interesting thing about content-based recommendation is that you could perhaps even tune it specifically to be more or less diverse. Because obviously if you made it choose songs which had the most similar sound qualities to one song, you'd basically get bored because they'd essentially sound the same, right? <laughs> it would be finding the songs that sound as as similar to each other as possible. But you could maybe tweak that and get it to have a certain level of difference between songs. So that could be really interesting. But we don't know if or how much streaming services use this approach because it can also be a bit dicey. It's quite risky because you're recommending songs with zero cultural context. And if you keep getting it wrong and, you know, recommending things that are way out, out way away from what people are interested in, then it's not going to be an effective recommendation system and people are just going to stop using it. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Like, I, I think that you talk about these kind of clusters of, of people, clusters of kind of similar bands, similar artists, and it's not necessarily even due to what they sound like. It might be bands that like tour together or bands that are from like the same like city or like the same scene. And, and I guess at the end of the day, people don't really want music that i guess generally people don't really want music that's too different to what they usually listen to they, they kind of want a little bit different but they kind of want it to be related and maybe that's what recommendation algorithms are actually kind of good at yeah 
That's exactly the point, really. Like, you know, on a theoretical level, I might think that I want to listen to all this different stuff. But there's a reason I listen to the same kind of things all the time, right? Because I do actually enjoy them. And that's sort of the thing. Although it may feel like you're listening to the same things all the time when you're using a stream service, you're actually probably listening to a much more diverse range than you would be before streaming services when you'd be relying on CDs that you'd chosen, perhaps supplemented by the radio station that you most enjoyed. But, you know, you probably have more at your fingertips now if you're using a streaming service than you would have done before. You have a lot more available. And Peter Nees, who I spoke to, suggested that actually... Maybe the difference is that in the past, it took more effort to find something. And so when you did, it felt more precious. And I think that's maybe a bit of what's going on here. It's that thing of choice overload. Like when you're trying to watch Netflix, you just end up flicking from one thing to the next rather than actually settling on a film because you can't choose. Perhaps if you put a bit more effort into finding something, you'll get that feeling of fulfillment you're looking for, regardless of how much diversity you really think you're getting. Well, I hope um, listening to the Wired UK podcast gives people that feeling of fulfilment. Uh, you never know. 500 episodes and still going. Podcast at wired.co.uk. How have you tried to freshen up your Spotify listening habits? Or are you sort of stuck with ABBA for the rest of your life like Vicky? Um, send us some tips and ways that you found to uh, break free of the algorithmic chains. Podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that story or anything else that we've talked about on the show this week. That's it for this bumper 500th anniversary edition of the Wired UK podcast. We'll be back for episode 501, where we'll spend less time talking about ourselves, I promise, next week. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.